welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 13. Continue our book, our look through the book of Zechariah, a series I've entitled A Glorious Future. At the end of this message, we're going to be partaking of communions. For those of you who are watching online, I would encourage you to go ahead and get ready for that, and you can uh, partake communion with us. For us, it's not an empty religious ritual. It has meaning. It has, has, has significance, deep spiritual significance, and it should never be approached in a, in a casual and, and unthinking way. It's something we ought to take very seriously. It reminds us of what had to be done so that we could be saved and go to heaven. That without the, 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 the reason why we participate or we, we partake of communion, then we would have no hope of heaven. We'd be lost in our sins and we would spend all of eternity separated from God. Jesus had to be nailed to that cruel Roman cross because we failed to live up to God's perfect standard. All of us did. None of us, none of us were perfect. And then when by faith we believe that this is true and confess our sins, he washes us clean and then declares us as righteous as if we had never sinned. It's a radical Radical thing. That cleansing is impossible apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it is impossible to go to God for anything or to go have the hope of heaven apart from that cleansing. So when we partake of communion, it's an act of of faith, it's an act of remembrance, it's an act of reminding ourselves of the awesome thing that was done for each of us individually. And then once we're cleansed, once we have the cleansing of forgiveness of sins, there's a glorious freedom that comes from that. No longer are we living with the weight of our guilt and our sin. We can walk free. So we're going to pray. And we're going to, we, sh- we should be preparing our hearts even now for communion. As we go through this message, especially as we talk about some things that are vital for that particular topic, we remind ourselves of what God did for us. But he's also going to, he's also going to do some similar things. He's going to do something to get his people, the Jews, ready for his arrival. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, we come, Lord, and, and as I stand here in the weakness of my flesh, I rejoice in the power of your Holy Spirit. 
And I thank you, Lord God, that no matter how, how what's going on in our lives, that we can, we can lean on, we can trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that you set before us. Whether it's to, to stand and, and deliver a message or it's to sit and receive one, Lord God, you, uh, you, can, you can do work in us. You can clear out all of the cobwebs. You can clear out the weakness. You can clear out the, the distraction and the confusion and, and all of the stuff, Lord, that might get in the way from us hearing what you want to say, that you might be able to take away the pain, take away the worry, take away the fear, take away anything that might be standing in the way of us hearing what you want to say to your church. And we ask that you would do that right now, Lord. And as we remind ourselves, prepare ourselves to partake of communion, to partake of what we also refer to as the Lord's Supper, we ask, Lord God, that our hearts would be ready for that. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do, and we thank you for your word, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 12 ended with the Jews meeting their Messiah in the last days. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says this, And I'll pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There's going to be a day in the future when Jesus presents himself to the Jews. Now, we don't know on a practical level exactly what that looks like, but somehow the, the, the Jesus is going, to, he's going to appear to them, and they're going to see him as the Messiah. God's going to do this radical work in them, and they will receive him. And, the, and when they see him and they will recognize who he is, the, the result is going to be mourning and grieving. And this mourning and grieving, it is an act of repentance and an admission of guilt for rejecting their Savior for 2,000 years. Saying, we, you were right there, everything you said was true, and we didn't receive it for 2,000 years. They've been rejecting Jesus as their Savior. And that repentance will release God's forgiveness and cleansing into their lives. And that's the same thing that happens for each and every one of us. When we repent, we are forgiven and cleansed every time. And it's the only way to be forgiven and cleansed is to repent. I've said, I've said over and over again, you probably can probably know what I'm going to say. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts that God gave to the church. If you repent, you are cleansed. You are made, you are made right with God. And right now, the Jews, as a nation, as a whole, are not right with God. Some are. There are some who have, have received their Savior, but a great many have not. But God has a plan. In Zechariah 13, verse 1, it says this, In that day, in the context of the book of Zechariah, in many places, in that day is referring to the last days, the end times, the time immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. 
One of the things we understand is that, you know, we think about the Jews, we might think, well, there's some special way that God's going to save them. No, they're going to be saved exactly the same way that we were. They have to look upon Jesus. They have to receive him as their Messiah, their Savior. They have to repent of their sins and accept his sacrifice on that cross for their salvation. It's the only way they can be saved. And they will do that, but um, they're going to have to go through some pretty tough stuff. And it says when they do that, you know, this, this, this idea of a fountain will be opened up. That fountain is a picture of the blood of Christ. Now, now we as Western Christians, the idea of a fountain of blood is pretty grotesque, right? I mean, would you admit that? That's not something that seems very pleasing to us, the idea of blood at all. We, matter of fact, people are kind of, kind of squeamish around blood, you know, unless you grew up on a farm and, and whatnot, you know, you don't, may not see that much, you know, blood stuff happening around you. But the reality in the, in the context here that God said to his people, he says, you know, the life is in the blood. And that when, when, they, when they did something that opposed, that was opposite of what God wanted, contrary to God's will, God's word, that the only, the only thing that could, that could make it right was blood, was the shedding of blood to cover over and to wash away that sin. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says this, for if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of the, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, that was the Jewish way of being right with God, was to go through this process of, of going through cleansing. That had to, uh, an innocent animal had to be sacrificed. It's blood sprinkled on, on different things around the temple. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Sadly, most Jewish people are far from God. It was a consequence. It was a, it was a, it was a, a penalty for their nation, pretty much as a whole, rejecting the Messiah when he came. And there are some who worship God, or at least say they worship God. The problem is they're not worshiping him the way he wants them to. When Jesus came, he replaced their form of worship with a new style of worship, with a new type of worship. They were to worship him in spirit and truth. Now, the only way to worship God in a way that pleases him is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Any other way is false. Any other way is actually something other than worshiping God. It is, would be described as idol worship. And there are a great many people in the world today that are, that are saying they worship God, but are not doing it the way that he says. And this may come as a surprise to some, but... When God says to worship me, he expects you to do it his way, not your way, because he is, after all, God, right? Does that not make sense? If God is God, he gets to determine how he's worshiped, and, and if it's different than the way I want to worship him, who wins that argument? should be him. Idol worship is, is, is bad. God hates it. 
God hates anything that stands in the way of a right worship of him. And he does because, because it's not what it costs him. Anything we do costs God nothing. You can't do anything that affects God. Anything you do that's contrary to God's will is affecting you and those around you. That's what God hates. It affects your relationship with him. It affects your relationship with others. Verse 2, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. In the days leading up to the second coming, God will purge his people of all idol worship. Now, as we look at the Jews today, that we don't see we don't see idol worship, not, not in the way that we would understand it, not in the way that we would, we would understand it as true idol worship. It, it's different today, and, and in fact, it's different for most of the world, though there are places in the world where idols are being worshiped, and you know, stone and wood objects that are bowed down and sacrificed to and all that kind of stuff. We understand that idol worship doesn't have to be to some object, some false god anything that stands in the way of true worship of 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 god ordained worship can be an idol and needs to be eliminated the most common type in our culture today with young people is self-worship not just young people a lot of people they worship self and we see that most clearly in one of the most common trends within our culture with young people is the idea of desiring to be an influencer on social media. That's all about self-worship, all about creating a following. This, this growing focus on self is a form of idolatry. And right up to the second coming, right up to the time that Jesus shows up, People are going to refuse to worship God the way he says. And, and that has to cost something. And they will worship something that is not worthy of worship. In Revelation 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, meaning there's a number of plagues that have happened at that point in Revelation 9, they did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Great many of the things that people are focusing their attention on, their worship on, the sense of adoration toward, are things that cannot do anything for them, cannot, cannot, cannot do either good or bad for them. Or, and even worse, some of these things they may be worshiping are demons. That, I mean, you got to think that that's probably not a good thing, right? Anybody see that worshiping a demon is probably bad? If you don't, see Pastor Randy because he can help you understand. That's a bad thing. We ought to be, when we're worshiping, we ought to be put our worship where, where it belongs. It, it, you know, the only, the only being worthy of worship in the entire universe is God. And he's the only one that can do us good or evil, in which, which case, if you're one of his people, he's going to do you good. The Lord will deal 
with those who would lead God's people astray. Verse 2, continuing. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. The combination of prophet and unclean spirit there tells us that that, those prophets are false prophets. Verse 3, it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. There are, to this very day, there are false prophets and false teachers. And, and the only way to know a false prophet and a false teacher is to know what God's word says about the things they're talking about. And, and there's gonna come a time where God's gonna, God's gonna put an end to that. And he's going to make it so clear when the false prophets are speaking that they're going to that, that even their own parents are going to recognize that they're speaking false, and then will respond appropriately. Not to suggest that parents will be killing their children in this way, but it's 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 to imply the the way God feels about false prophets and false teaching. God hates it. Again, not because it costs him something, because it costs him nothing but it leads others astray. Gosh, I, I, one of my great concerns, not really a concern, but one of the burdens of my own heart is that I never speak a word falsely, never. The idea of doing that just sickens me. I want nothing but truth to come because, because God has put me in a place where, where he's He's using me for the purpose of influencing, right? You know, that's why I'm here, right? I'm here to influence you toward God, toward holiness, toward righteousness, not toward Calvary Chapel, French Valley, not toward, you know, you know Rick, but toward God. I always want to do that well. These false prophets are people who say they are speaking on behalf of God. And, and, and here's the thing, folks. You know, there, that when, when somebody like me stands up here, there's almost an inferred truth where you, you expect me to speak on behalf of God, right? You expect me to speak in the name of God, to speak truth in the name of God. But how do you know? And I, I have, I, there are churches, churches, air quote, churches, all around us, where men and women are standing up in front of groups of people. And I don't, I don't know that they know that they're speaking false things, but I can guarantee you their people don't know that. And so as they sit there, week after week after week, listening to false things after false things, they are being led astray. That grieves my heart. God's going to deal with that. And the, in the end times, people who had been doing that will know that God is done with them and that there's a consequence attached to it. In verse 4, And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and he will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. Again, false prophets, their, their, their objective is to deceive sometimes for their own benefit, sometimes for fame, sometimes for whatever. 
but they know that they've been doing this to ultimately to deceive. Something in, something in them knows that. And this idea of a coarse hair a robe was, was a garment that they would wear that was different than what ordinary people wore. It kind of singled them out as being a prophet, as somebody you know, who speaks on behalf of God. Uh, the last one we see um, in the Bible was John the Baptist. He wore this garment like this, and he was, he was the last of the true prophets in that, uh, in that generation before Christ. Verse 5, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. The idea here is that, that if, if someone is a false prophet, the penalty for being a false prophet was death. If you speak falsely on beha- on, in the name of God, the, the only possible consequence for you is death. It was a capital offense, and, and, and the, the way you were supposed to die is by stoning. You know, the, the, you know, the community is to take you out and throw rocks at you until you're dead. Anybody? Yeah, I don't want to be on either side of that, you know, right? I don't think I'd ever want to do that. And so anyone accused of being a false prophet would say, oh, no, no, wait a minute. No, I'm, just, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a farmer. I just raise cattle. Verse 6, and one will say to him, well, then what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In, the, in, that, in that culture and in that time, one of the ways that prophets, um, these false prophets would, would entreat or, or, or seek response from their gods, these false gods, was to cut themselves and to and to we see that in the in the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they were you know cutting themselves and blood is gushing everywhere. Another beautiful sweet picture for a Sunday morning, and and that was one of the ways that they would you know you know cause their gods to respond to them. In First Kings eighteen twenty eight, it says this: So they cried aloud and cut themselves because you know their gods who were not real gods, weren't responding to them, as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And so then, you know, these false prophets then in this context would lie about where these wounds came from because, they, again, they didn't want to be called out as false prophets. Again, all of this is referring to the end times, and obviously the, the reality is, is that there's going to be a different interpretation for this once we get to that point because the, the false prophets will not be doing these Theoretically, they're not going to be cutting themselves. They'll be doing something else that has the same effect. And so it'll translate differently once we get to the end times. Well, we're not going to, we're going to be, we're going to be out of here by then. Amen? Somebody say hallelujah. <clears throat> you know, today, sadly, there are many false prophets and false teachers. It is so important, church, that you know God and you know his word. That that's the only defense you have. The Holy Spirit in you speaking through the word of God, implanted into your heart, known, believed, and obeyed. That's your only defense, and you must do that. You know, find a church that believes that. You know, and I, like we believe that it's the word of God that transforms us, changes us, and makes us whole, keeps us safe, keeps us on the right path. So know your Bible. Amen? <clears throat> these, uh, these words... Verses 1 through 6 come as a, a warning, I believe, for anyone who handles the Word of God publicly. In James 3, 1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Again, standing before God, speaking in his name, 
um, is something you ought to take very seriously and you ought to not jump into uh, without, without a sense of fear and um, humility. God's not going to tolerate people who, who will not, who will misrepresent him in his word. Uh, there will be consequences. Now the subject shifts here from verse 6 to verse 7 from the false prophets to God's shepherd. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Shepherd is one of the titles that we see used for the Messiah. The Messiah, we use the term Messiah. The Messiah is the Savior, the Savior of the world. If, if, if what the Bible says is true and we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we need somebody to save us, that Savior is also Messiah. They are universal, you know, they're interchangeable terms. And Jesus makes it very clear who this person is. When he quotes this verse in Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So in that context, Jesus is making himself the shepherd and his disciples are the sheep. And so they will be scattered. Um, it, says that, you know, you know, it says that God says that I will strike the shepherd. Well, there's a radical thought there. As we think about the whole scenario, the whole um, pathway that took Jesus to the cross, you know, we, we know, we know that, that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed them to the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders then, you know, in a mock trial, falsely accused him and handed him over to Pontius Pilate and the Romans. Pilate looked at him and, 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 and you know, thought he was innocent. said, I, I want to release him. And yet, because of fear of what the Jews might do, he didn't. And he turned him over to be crucified after being beaten and scourged. They crucified him. And even though it was our sins, yours and mine, that required his death on the cross, it was God the Father, Christ's eternal Father in heaven, that made it happen. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53 is one of those, those radical messianic um, chapters. Talks all about Jesus in there. It's like Psalm 22. They're all about Jesus, even though they were thousands of years or thousand years plus before him. It says it pleased the Lord. Now that's a, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord, God the Father, to send Jesus to the cross. That's a hard thing to accept. But we have to understand why it pleased him. Because it was the only way to save us. It pleased him to do whatever it took to save us. 
God knew that by sending his son to the cross, billions of people could be saved. People created in his image for his glory, to be his children, not just now, but forever. We may never fully understand the depth of the meaning of that, but we ought to take some time and think about it, that God did the unthinkable because it was the only thing that could possibly save us. But when it does happen, he says that God's people will scatter. Now, it was a partial fulfillment of that on that very night when the soldiers came, Judas betrayed, and the soldiers came and arrested Jesus. The disciples scattered. And, and then, even though the Jews, as a nation, rejected Jesus as Messiah, they were still God's people. They were still the sheep of his pasture. And we see that they were ultimately scattered to the ends of the earth in 70 A.D. And as the second coming approaches, most of the Jews will be living in unbelief. They, they, they will not respond. They will not turn to God. And even as God is judging the world for sin, some will cling to a false hope of religious observances. They're going to rebuild their temple and they're going to go back to animal sacrifices and they're going to believe that that makes them right with God, but it won't. The sacrifice that was needed to make them right with God was done 2,000 years ago. And that's going to lead to one of the greatest tragedies in human history, at least as it relates to the Jews. In verse 8, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. This is likely to take place in the period of time known as the time of Jacob's trouble or what we more commonly know as the tribulation. There's going to come a time that, that God is going to be done with sin and wickedness and rebellion against him. And he's going to do what he promised. He promised to judge this world for sin. And when he does that, it's going to be terrible. Nothing this world has ever seen even remotely comes close to it as he pours out judgment after judgment after judgment on a God-hating, Christ-rejecting, wicked world. Turn your, turn your Bibles to Matthew 24 where Jesus talks about this period. That period, a seven-year period, immediately precedes the second coming. Now, all of us as Christ followers want Jesus to come back. Somebody say, yes, I want Jesus to come back. We want Jesus to come back. You know, that, that, you know there's a part of me that's kind of torn with that, you know, because I do want Jesus to come back. But that's going to mean billions of people, billion with a B of people have to face the judgment of God. Billions of people must face the judgment of God before he comes back. Now, I love the idea of Jesus coming back and dealing with all the brokenness in this world, but I don't like the idea of that. You should never like the idea of that. God is gonna deal with the sin problem on this earth 
and it will be terrible. And for the first half of that seven-year period as God is judging the world, the Jews will be experiencing something of a peace. It's a false peace that they entered into um, with a man that some are going to believe is the Messiah. You know, we, we, we often miss this. You know, we think of this, the Antichrist as some horrible human. He is horrible. But that's not how he's going to present himself. He's going to come onto the scene as a savior. And the whole world is going to flock to him, turn to him as a savior. Don't know how he's going to do it. All we know is that's how they're going to relate to him. And they're going to do things with him and for him that are, are unnatural because he is presenting himself in some way that they'll receive him as a savior, including the, some of the Jews. Many of the Jews will receive him the same way. He is a false Messiah. He is the anti-Christ. He's the opposite of Christ. But he's not going to look that way in the beginning. Not until not till the halfway point. Not until the three and a half years of the tribulation of over are over, right at the midway point of the tribulation period, then he's going to reveal his true character. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by, the, by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the mount, housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight might not be <clears throat> in winter or on the sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be or unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. You can turn back to Zechariah 13 now. The Antichrist is going to come onto the scenes after he's been acting as their Messiah, their Savior for three and a half years. And then he's going to set up in, in, the, in the, the Jewish temple, which has been rebuilt during this time. He's going to set up an image to himself and demand that the whole world worship him as God. And at that point, the, you know, the Jesus says, uh, you need to run. You need to run for the hills because, because the Jews will not worship him, he will turn on them. And this verse tells us that two-thirds of them will be killed. Two-thirds. Great human tragedy. We also know elsewhere, it says not only will he go after the Antichrist, go after the Jews, but he goes after anyone who believes in God. Anyone believes in any God other than him. Um, so he's going he's gonna to be a bad dude. But two-thirds will not escape. They will die. And they will die lost in their sin. Another great tragedy. But one-third will survive. Verse 9. I will bring one-third through the fire will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Fire in this context is referring to affliction. 
and that is common. We've seen it all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament. You see affliction being used to refine and test God's people. Um, in Egypt, they were, they were afflicted in Egypt. In the wilderness, they were afflicted in the wilderness. They're afflicted, afflicted, afflicted very often because they were being stiff-necked and hard-hearted toward God. God, God doesn't want to send affliction to his people. We've got to understand that. There's, God has no desire to afflict his people. Because affliction, you know, anybody know that affliction is not good, right? It doesn't feel good to be afflicted. And affliction is meant often to, as it says here, to refine or test. To refine says to make it more pure. To test is to prove that it is pure. And so both of those are important to us. And the Bible seems to suggest to us that they are normal and natural, even for people who are seeking God, that affliction is going to come. And that affliction comes to purify us further because, you know I, know, I know you may think differently, but you're not perfect yet, right? You know, only people on this side might, th- no, I, no, anyways. So there, there are some that might think, I'm doing okay. God says, no, you're not, you're not quite there yet. And he knows that there are certain things that the only affliction is going to make you better. Only affliction is going to be able to work out whatever you need to. And so we should not, we should not, we should not despise these things. In Hebrews, it tells us not to despise the chastening of the Lord. It's important for us. Hebrews 12, 11. Now, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know what? You know, the, I would guess, because that's probably the way I would feel, if I was being perfectly honest, which I should be, right? Somebody say, yes, please be honest, Pastor. Um, I don't want affliction. I want my life to go smoothly. I want thing to, everything to go, you know, just easy. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll seek God. I'll go after him. I'll do my best. But God knows that that's not, that's not going to work. Humans are weird creatures, we get distracted, we get caught up in stuff, we get, we get you know, we, we, we just won't do the right things most of the time. And we need something every now and then to get our attention and to bring us back into that right place with God. What is God's desire for each and every one of us? That's perfection, purity, holiness, righteousness, and he's gonna do whatever it takes to get you there. And if you can get there through blessings, he's going to bless you. If it's going to take affliction, he's going to afflict you. If it's going to take pain and suffering, pain and suffering is coming. He's going to do whatever it takes to help you be pure and perfect and holy and righteous. You know why? Because that's what's best for you. You know, it, God, if God didn't love you, he would just let you be. Do whatever you want. Just go. You know, if you, if you said the prayer, okay, that's good enough. You just go ahead and be a, be a believer now and, and you'll be okay. But that's not the best life for you. The best life for you is different than that. And God's going to do whatever it takes to get you to that best life. If you need affliction, he lovingly will send affliction. He loves you too much to leave us less than perfect. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this, In this, 
you greatly rejoice. Okay, get ready, because you're going to greatly rejoice by what comes next. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials are hard things, right? Do we acknowledge that? A trial is a hard thing. That, this is the result of those various trials. The genuous of your faith being much more precious than gold. Here, listen to this. Much more precious than gold, not to God, but to you. To you. It's your holiness is more precious to you than gold, which perishes. Though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. As we prepare to partake of communion, we need to take a little time and remind ourselves how much God loves us. He loves us so much that he doesn't just leave us alone. And he's going to do everything that he has to to help you to be the best person you can be, to be whole, to be holy, to be righteous, to be pure, to be perfect, so that you can have the life that you desire. He loves you so much that he will do everything in his power to make you better, to make you more like his son, God in the flesh, Jesus. We're going to pray, and then we'll, Pastor Randy will come up and lead us in communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much. You love us so much that, that you won't leave us alone. You won't leave us um, as we are. You accept us. You receive us as we are. We, we don't have to change to come to you, but once we are yours, you want so much more from us, for us. And so I pray, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, I pray, Lord, that you would just remind us how much you love us. You've said in your, in your word, your love for the Jews. And that, Lord, it, it grieves our hearts to know that so many will be lost because they won't respond. And I pray, Lord, that there's no one here listening to my voice, watching this message that is in that place where they won't respond to you because you love them so much that you sent your son to die for them. And so I pray that you would help them to see that right now, that you'd help them to see their need for you, that without you, they can go on living the life they're living, but it's not the life they should be living. It's not a life, it's not a good life that the good life is lived with you, walking in, in intimacy and, and joy and hope and peace and obedience to your word. And so I pray that you'd minister to your people right this very moment. If there's anyone out there that doesn't know you, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, communion is for believers. You don't become a believer by partaking of communion. You celebrate as a believer. And so if someone's out there, they have not received Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, that they would do that right this very moment. They would recognize their need for him. Recognize that this life is, is, is important. It's important to live it the right way. And the right way is through faith in Jesus Christ. They recognize that living any other way is wrong. God calls it sin. And the way that we're they were saved from our sin 
is to repent of it and turn to Christ. And so there's anyone here who has not done that, anyone watching online or will watch us whenever, that they will do that right this very moment. They will open their heart to you, God, and receive you as their Lord and Savior, confessing all of their sin and laying it down at your feet and receiving your forgiveness and the hope of heaven. And if you've done that, then let's partake of communion together. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we love you, we lift this this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfd.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.